The Spin-Off Podcast Network. When the Facts Change is brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Kiwi Bank. The bank for Kiwi looking to get ahead in business and in life. A bank that delivers expertise and banking know-how, smart advice for business owners wanting to invest, grow their business or diversify. A bank that adapts with technology through the lens of its people and customers. It is a bank with heart that is driven by its purpose. Kiwi making Kiwi better off. Have you ever driven into a town or gotten out of an airport and suddenly you can feel in the air that this place is dead? All the shops are empty. There's hardly anyone on the footpaths. The coffee's crap. There isn't many places to eat. There's hardly anything on. The movie theatre's shut. There's nothing to go to, to be there for. This is a dying city or a dying town. I'm loath to name names, but Tomodanui, Foxton, Invercargill. I'm imagining the hate mail now, but let's be honest. When a city or a town dies, you can feel it in the air. And right now, Wellington is a place that feels a bit like it's dying. For those who've been around for a while, you would have remembered the comments from the then Prime Minister, John Key that he thought Wellington was, quote, a dying city. This really made him not popular at all in Wellington at the time, in part because um, everyone loves the place they're in. Uh, Sometimes they have to love it because they're invested there. If they own property, they certainly don't want to talk it down. But secondly, I think people knew in their bones that he was onto something, that Wellington was actually in a bit of trouble. The anger was amplified because many people in Wellington believed that John Key was doing the killing. And it's sort of right because the then national government from 2008 to 2017, particularly after 2011-12, made a point of pressing down on spending in central government. And when you look at investment by government, employment by government in Wellington, it pretty much stagnated from 2011 through to 2017, 2018. There were also problems with some of the big movies not being renewed in Wellington. And certainly in the last four or five years, after some earthquakes damaged a bunch of buildings and forced a rethink for a whole bunch of others, There's a sense that Wellington is being slowly eroded, gutted from within. That feeling accelerated in the last two years under COVID, as many of the people who worked in the centre of Wellington migrated out to the suburbs to work from home. And during the last year, particularly around the February-March protests around Parliament, that end of town had a slightly dangerous feel to it and eventually led to a whole bunch of the cafes and restaurants there closing. Wellington has lost its animal spirits. That's the broad feeling. But what are animal spirits and how do you get them back? Animal spirits is the term that John Maynard Keynes invented in his epic 1936 book, The General Theory of Employment. It's a cracking read. He talked about how an economy 
when it has momentum and it's growing, you can tell that its animal spirits are up. And for a city, those animal spirits really matter. And for the last few years, Wellington's animal spirits have drifted away into the suburbs. And now there are real concerns about how it grows. But the problem is a whole bunch of the prescriptions for how to grow Wellington may be missing the mark. This week on When the Facts Change, I talked to John Allen, who's the Wellington NZ CEO. Wellington NZ is the regional development agency for Wellington. Effectively, it coordinates a lot of the promotional efforts, the business building efforts, and tries to be the cheerleader for Wellington business and for growth of Wellington. It tries to attract people to work in Wellington, businesses to invest in Wellington. Most big cities have these things, economic development agencies, and boy, Wellington NZ has its work cut out at the moment. John Allen talks about some of the challenges in reinvigorating Wellington, particularly around a lack of infrastructure, questions about the movie industry, whether it will survive the current review that the government's doing of the big subsidies that are paid to the movie studios, also the issues with the lack of buildings and hotels in particular. But Wellington has been a powerhouse in the past, and the question is, will it be in the future? In my view, the real issue with Wellington, and I talk about this in the interview with John Allen, is a chronic shortage of housing. Not only affordable housing, but housing you can live in, housing that's there. I know from um, talking to friends and family that so many people have struggled to get housing in Auckland, particularly students at this time of the year. We've all heard the stories of people queuing for hours just to view a place to live in, the problems with mould. And it's clear that Wellington's consenting rate is about half that of the other big cities in New Zealand. The best example of that is the low-rise townhouses on Taranaki Street, uh, built on the site of a former car yard, the Ford car yard, which should have been a high-rise with a couple of hundred dwelling units. Instead, less than a quarter of that number were built because the council didn't want to invest in a big pipe up Taranaki Street to ensure that those homes could be built on that site. This is chronic throughout Wellington. A lack of investment in infrastructure by the local councils and a lack of investment in infrastructure by the central government. We certainly see what happens when you do invest in underlying infrastructure in a big city. It fosters a significant surge in growth in housing and in other activity. Christchurch, obviously, for its own reasons with the rebuild and the amount of money that the government pumped into the pipes and underlying infrastructure. Auckland as well, because of the amount of government money that's being put into the city rail link and lots of other bits and pieces of infrastructure. Wellington needs that investment. The risk for Wellington in the next couple of years is that the migration of those animal spirits away from the city because of high housing costs, because of the earthquakes, risks being elevated by the potential death of the movie sector and a change of government which would see the growth of the number of new people working in Wellington 
stool. This week on When the Facts Change, we try to work out where have the animal spirits of Wellington gone? Well, kia ora and welcome to When the Facts Change to John Allen, the CEO of Wellington NZ. John, lovely to see you there um, at the other end of the island. Uh, kia ora, Bernard. Great to be on. I'm curious about how cities develop and how our governments, councils and central government intervene, if you like, or help um, our businesses and cities grow. Could you tell us a bit more about economic development agencies and what they're there for and what they do? Well, actually, I mean, economic development agencies and what they're there for is a huge debate uh, in many parts of the country. So some people think economic development agencies are there to market cities uh, and to attract uh, various forms of visitation and talent uh, to their cities. Some think they're there to uh, assist with uh, large infrastructure-type projects. Some think they're there to facilitate. Uh, so there's a significant debate about what the purpose of economic development agencies is and I think it requires each development agency to determine quite clearly where it sees its focus. Uh, no development agency is set up to actually deliver the economic outcomes that are required to ensure the future vitality and prosperity of the communities represented in the city. Uh, we don't have the PL, we don't have a balance sheet. Because that's the, the basic assumption, isn't it? That all the conditions are in place, the infrastructure, the training, the people. And this is a bit like sprinkling the salt and pepper on top to make it really, really tasty. But often the problems are much deeper than that. Can you talk about some of these uh, things which, you're right, you don't have a PL or a balance sheet and you can't go out there and um, build a new motorway or whatever. Can you tell us about some of the issues that Wellington faces in terms of that those underlying conditions that uh, you know can can make life difficult? Well, the challenge I think for all cities in the current environment is attracting talent, uh, because truthfully, if you're going to create jobs, you're going to build businesses, uh, you're going to create the um, the underpinnings for a successful economic um, environment. You need to have talented people and you need to be able to attract those talented people. Uh, and obviously the war for talent both in New Zealand and internationally is huge. And obviously the way in which talent engages with place has changed as a consequence of new technologies and things of that kind. So one of the big challenges that we face uh, in Wellington is securing and keeping uh, and exciting the talent that we need uh, to um, deliver the future that we envisage uh, for our city. Uh, I think that's common in many, many places. Wellington is the part of New Zealand that has the highest incomes uh, per capita, particularly central Wellington, uh, because there's lots of high-paid, interesting jobs. What, apart from the, the income, what is the core limiting factor in attracting that talent at the moment? Oh, well, I mean, the, the, actually, we're, do, we're doing a pretty good job of it uh, in the environment that, uh, that we have because the proposition for Wellington uh, remains pretty compelling. But obviously, there are challenges, and the challenges include uh, the high cost of uh, accommodation and housing 
uh, in our city, which has been an issue for us, uh, and some of the headwinds that have been created by COVID in part, uh, but also by um, a lack of investment over a long period of time or sufficient investment uh, in infrastructure, uh, which has uh, obviously been a sub the subject of quite significant discussion over in, in, the recent, in the recent times. Can you give us some examples of how those housing costs are limiting businesses who are trying to attract talent here? Oh well, I, th I think it's reasonably simple. I mean, if you want to, uh, if if you want sort of young people to be coming to your town to to provide you with that energy and vitality and 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 new uh, vision, uh, and you can secure them perhaps as uh, as students or something of that kind, and then they're making cho choices about where they want to live longer term, where they might want to um, raise a family. Questions of the affordability of housing, questions of the uh, you know, that all those sorts of issues are real. Uh, and so all I'm saying is that despite the strong proposition for our city, which undoubtedly we have, and undoubtedly that continues to uh, attract talented people to the region, um, the housing issue has been a handbrake on us uh, and we need to address that issue. Now, in part, uh, that issue is being dealt with um, as a consequence of falling house prices and consequently falling rates, uh, but that's not a complete answer because of the inflationary pressures that are that are rising on the other side. So, so you know, it's a it's a complex beast. Do you have a sense of you know what would be needed to really solve the issue from a from a, a talent attraction point of view? Do you need an extra? Ten thousand homes, twenty thousand oh, homes. Not, I, yeah, that's not an issue that I've I've really delved into specifically, Bernard. In terms of the mm. uh, the solution, I think you're right to recognise that it's probably the supply side that's the uh, uh, that's the um, the opportunity. Uh, although, obviously, in central Wellington, we've we've got some geographical challenges in relation to uh, uh, to building large numbers of um, of uh, you know further housing with the intensification. Um, plans in place that'll that will address some of that, but uh, we do have some geographical constraints. And just on that issue of the geographical constraints, um, which is a nice uh, euphemism for um, lots of interesting hills, and then there's the uh, the earthquake issue. For those people who may not have um, remembered or heard of the Kokura earthquakes and how that affected. Wellington, can you give us a sense of what it did to supply of uh, office space, hotels, housing? You know, give us a sense of how much of a shock that was, and and how that's rippled through the business community and you know the infrastructure for Wellington. Look, I mean, we're, we're, New Zealand is an earthquake-prone uh, country. Uh, we uh, we're right on those uh, the, the, you know that plate tectonics things going on under. Uh, under us, and um, and uh, in the same way as Christchurch and other places um, have been impacted by by earthquakes, Kaikoura, obviously, as you say, um, Wellington is um, impacted by earthquakes. Uh, the the, the Kaikoura earthquake, in particular, uh, damaged a number of buildings in our city, and many a number of those have had to be uh, demolished. And there's now rebuilding. Uh, programs that underway. I think more particularly, Kaikoura forced a reconsideration of the policy settings uh, for building um, strengthening and design, uh, which resulted in the reassessment of the vulnerability of buildings 
uh, that might otherwise have been considered um, reasonably um, immune from uh, from uh, earthquake damage, except in particularly extreme uh, contexts. And that's seen some buildings which previously were not thought to be earthquake-prone uh, to be declared earthquake-prone, and that's requiring uh, systematic um, investment uh, by property owners and by uh, our council uh, to, um, to remediate uh, those buildings and get them back on stream. And how much of a restraint is that? Because I understand there are some people who have a building and are either concerned that uh, the insurance costs uh, or the uh, reconditioning costs will be so high, uh, not just to rebuild it, but after the event as well, that they're they're leaving the building building empty. They're not sure what to do with it. You know, how, how is that affecting what Wellington's future and how it's operating now? Well, I mean, it has had an impact on, on the city. There's no doubt about that because we have had buildings, as you say, that have been empty uh, and that that um, sucks energy out of the vibe of the place um, just, just as a consequence. There are things you can do to mitigate that and we've been doing them, but nonetheless, uh, I think that general proposition is true. The real issue here, in my mind, Bernard, that I think people need to really think hard about is how regularly and often we move the goalposts in this space. Now, I know it's emerging science and it's changing. It's you know going to the point of the subject, the title of these podcasts, what happens when the facts change. But, but, <laughs> but, 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 but you can imagine for a property investor, uh, it's extraordinarily challenging. If you build a building to the, to the standards of 100% and then you find in, in a year or two's time or whatever, uh, different perspectives are taken of that particular structure uh, and you're having to reinvest uh, in your building. So I think then getting some, some um, you know, trying to get some stability around the way in which the regulations are applying uh, to these buildings being pragmatic and balancing appropriately risk and utilisation of buildings uh, is really important to creating the confidence for uh, building owners to continue to invest. I'm curious about the hotels situation. Um, Wellington NZ's job is in part to attract tourists, to boost tourism businesses, to um, coordinate uh, promotion of events and make sure that, you know, when there is a big event, there's, <laughs> there's a place for them to stay as well as party. Uh, what's the story with hotels? Uh, uh, we need more because... of them, uh, is the short answer. <laughs> uh, and, and, and for the reason that you've just described, I mean, we, we are attracting vast numbers of people to our city. The, the, the events program that we run uh, is genuinely a fantastic um, events program. Now, I would say that, but, but it is. Uh, and we do successfully bring uh, heaps of people uh, to the city for events. We do bring them here. We've got the new convention centre uh, coming on stream this year. That will add significantly in terms of uh, conventions and exhibitions uh, with visitation. We've got visitors here as a consequence of being centre of government. We've got visitors here as a consequence of the universities, the CRIs, the, all the stuff that's going on in this extraordinary place. Uh, and you're right, uh, we need to be able to accommodate them. And at the moment, uh, our projections are that we need more um, hotel investment. So if anyone's listening to this and has a penchant <laughs> for investing in a new hotel, uh, Wellington is undoubtedly a good place to do it. Uh, and, um, you know, in terms of the demand, both current and prospective. 
But this isn't too much of a surprise for the you know, the experts in the hotel sector. Um, and you wonder why hasn't there been a private industry response to to this? The the new um, Peter Jackson uh, Museum and Conference Centre has been under construction for several years. Uh, you know, we've known that um, even with COVID, there'd be a big surge back in in people. Um, yet there just doesn't seem to have been the the hotels built. What, do you think there's a need for some form of intervention or what's... We haven't got the Peter Jackson movie uh, museum uh, going yet, uh, Bernard. That's, uh, that's aspirational and undoubtedly if we, uh, if we get that on top of every other damn thing we've got, uh, the city is going to go <laughs> off in, a, in an unbelievably spectacular way. So I'm, I'm delighted you're putting a push in uh, to Peter for, for, for thinking hard about that and thinking hard about what else we can... Um, we can Put into the mix of attractions for our city to um, uh, to bring people here. The conference centre, in particular, yeah. Truthfully, my view. Well, well, the, the conference centre is a conference and convention centre, but it doesn't at the moment um, accommodate Peter's um, collections, which are terrific and uh, extensive and uh, would be big big draw cards. I think. I think truthfully, the issue, the primary issue that's that's constrained. Um, the investment in, in hotel infrastructure in the last little while has been uncertainties created by COVID, uncertainties created in, in, a, in, in terms of tourism and what, what it will be and how it will come back, um, uncertainties created from by, by technologies as to what the convention structures will be, whether people will actually come back to, uh, to formal conventions, and uncertainties, as I've just said, in the regulatory environment around... Um, uh, around uh, buildings uh, uh, as looked at uh, as a consequence of some of the earthquake events that you've just referred to. So so that mix of uncertainties uh, has meant that notwithstanding the fact that people can see the opportunity, they've been they've been they've been uh, reluctant to sort of step in. I think now that that's becoming clearer, I mean as we see the cruise I mean the cruise ships aren't the answer, but as but there, but there are but there are a uh, a signal of a return to a, to a type of tourism that perhaps we weren't sure would would actually revert. Um, as we see that happen, as we see the actual conventions booking, so we know we're going to get you know the actual uh, people here. Uh, as we see uh, the the need for human contact as a mechanism for driving both community and business. Um, I think people are going to be more confident and going to get into the uh, hotel game. There's a lot of conversations going on at the moment in Wellington. Now, and uh, I, I have no doubt at all that we'll be seeing uh, hotel investment in this city over the next period. And the conference centres and the events, are they coming back um, after COVID? Uh, I know that there has been a, a revival, but is it going to come back to the full 100%? And also, there has been a lot of uh, people in the centre of Wellington who've learned how to work from home. Their department or their business um, has finally got their cloud arrangements going properly. Everyone's, you know, renovated the back room uh, or the garage into a, a home office. Are we going to come back to the 100% for conferences and for, uh, and for people working in the office in the CBD? So first up, in terms of visitors, uh, I think that we will see a return to um, to uh, uh, strong tourism numbers uh, in New Zealand. Actually, not not just in Wellington, 
Uh, and I think the indications with what we've seen with crews uh, as the airlines are beginning to build their um, their uh, capacity uh, back into New Zealand again, we're seeing that. Um, so, so I, I so I do think that we're going to see a return of tourism. Whether we get a slightly reshaped tourist in terms of what um, Minister Nash would talk about in terms of a higher sort of net worth um, individual, I'm I'm not so sure. But but nonetheless, uh, that's um, I think the the. Uh, tourist numbers, visitor numbers are strong, and I think the New Zealand proposition remains strong, uh, notwithstanding the obvious challenge with distance and climate and all of those sorts of um, uh, those sorts of elements. Uh, work from home is a, is a, is a, a difficult one. I think CBDs are changing, and I think our CBD will continue to change. I think we'll see more people living in our CBD than the, uh, than we've had in the in the past, uh, and perhaps uh, fewer offices. I do think that people will return to offer to, to, to well look there, there, there's there's a huge debate as you know going on about whether and to what extent people need to have some form of actual physical human engagement uh, to um, uh, to provide a sort of office culture and vibe to get those casual conversations going that that are so creative or can be within a, an office environment, and I think to just provide a bit of the sort of social stimulation that that um, uh, that the office provides. Uh, and uh, you know, my sense is that we are seeing people returning to the office, even if it's only for some uh, anchor days in the course of a week, maybe three anchor days, and then a few to away from the office, something like that. Now, that's not to say that's everybody, and I get that there are people who are going to work remotely and that's what they're going to do, uh, but I think we're seeing more people back in town and we can actually see that in the numbers around the city. When the Facts Change is brought to you in partnership with KiwiBank to help you understand the issues affecting the economy. And that's what their team of experts is here to do too. Here's KiwiBank's Chief Economist Jared Kerr with his prediction on what we can expect from the housing market and interest rates for 2024. We've seen quite a correction in housing across the country. So house prices fell from the lofty levels that we saw in 2021. The Reserve Bank has pushed house prices down by design and by lifting interest rates to very eye-watering levels. I think the housing market has found a bottom and I think we'll see house prices rising over 2024 and into 25, 26. The housing market will be better balanced. We have seen a, a surge in migrants, which is adding demand to the housing market. And I think we'll see house prices naturally lift on the back of that surge in migration and uh, hopefully an easing in interest rates later on. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to stay up to date with detailed economic analysis and forecasts from Jared and other KiwiBank experts. They take big issues from both here and overseas and make them relevant to Kiwi businesses. Ready to rediscover the joys of cycling? With over 300 kilometres of cycle paths across Tamaki Makoto, jumping on your bike and going for a ride is such a fun way to discover the city from a different perspective. Cycling is getting more and more popular across Auckland, so now's a great time to join the hype and give cycling a go. Head to at.govt forward slash cycling to find your nearest cycleway today. Are you making the most of your KiwiSaver investment? 
Generate is an award-winning KiwiSaver provider with a track record of strong long-term performance. Making a smart decision now could add tens of thousands of dollars by the time you reach retirement. Book a no-obligation chat with a Generate KiwiSaver advisor today at generatekiwisaver.co.nz slash advice. A copy of the product disclosure statement is available at generatekiwisaver.co.nz. The issuer of the scheme is Generate Investment Management Limited and of course past performance does not guarantee future returns. Wellington's often been seen as, um, you know, uh, welly wood, and obviously there's, there's a big government component. Uh, at the moment, the screen sector is under review by the government, and, uh, you know, who knows what's going to happen in the next year or two with um, makeups of governments and those sorts of things. But what's your view on um, how that review should go and whether there's a risk for Wellington that the subsidies get pulled and uh, Welly Wood dries up a bit? Well, we've got Avatar in the, um, uh, in the cinemas around the world at the moment. Uh, and that, as you know, is largely a wetter FX um, production. Uh, we've got Taika Waititi in, in town at the moment doing um, uh, Time Bandits. So, so there's a heap of film um, activity uh, at the moment. Uh, and it's, there's no doubt at all in my mind that film adds significant economic value to our region as it does to other parts of our country uh, and that in projecting and telling stories often that reflect our country, it's not always, our, I mean, Avatar's not really uh, a, a New Zealand story, uh, but, um, but in doing that, it, it builds reputation of creativity and things that is attractive for talent in a way that I think is, is extremely powerful and often undervalued by people in Treasury. Uh, so the simple point on the uh, rebate um, process is I think we need to continue to have a rebate scheme. I think the critical thing with that review is that the review is completed quickly. Uh, it's the uncertainty of the review which causes projects to decide to go to Australia or go to Canada, or go to uh, you know uh, parts other parts of Europe uh, to film, uh, rather than to come to Wellington or to Auckland or to other parts of New Zealand. Uh, and so, uh, I'm a strong proponent for the film sector. I think the film sector adds significant value. I think it has created a remarkable reputation for our country. Uh, I think there is huge opportunity for us to continue to build in that area. Uh, it supports a wide range of small businesses. You know, if you think about it, it's not just um, Peter Jackson or, or whatever or James Cameron. It, it's, it's, it's the builder who builds the sets. It's the person who does the lighting. It's the people who do the makeup or sew the costumes or whatever. It's a huge infrastructure. In fact, you know, if I think about it now, the NZSO, based obviously New Zealand Treasurer and based here, um, you know, they spend a huge amount of their time now doing music for film or music for games, um, as well as doing sort of orchestral um, uh, uh, concerts. So, so, so getting that sort of infrastructure, um, having that infrastructure in place gives us, I think, a real competitive advantage in Wellington, but it also... Uh, I think New Zealand has has significant advantages as well. So uh, film, I think, is important. I think storytelling is important, and I think for our reputation as a creative country, uh, it's critical. So I'm very keen to see this, um, this review completed. I'm very keen to see us make sure we have a competitive rebate scheme because, remember, the, the rebate scheme that we have at the moment 
uh, is not nearly as aggressive as in some other parts of the country, including in Australia, because they have both state and uh, federal compensations. And, and while I don't think that we need to get involved in some sort of race to the bottom, I, I don't think we need to match all these people because I think we've got some unbelievable talent and capability here, I do think that it's important that we're, that we're at least competitive in that space. And I realise I'm saying this, that I'm going head-to-head with some Treasury people, but truthfully, I think they're wrong on this. <laughs> so, should we do the same also for gaming? Because uh, there yes. are calls, calls from the gaming sector yeah. where Wellington has some pretty big gaming or gaming companies that want to expand? We're, we're extraordinarily lucky. We've got, a mag- we've got some magnificent um, gaming capability here. Uh, and again, what you're seeing is a convergence in the way in which films are made between the gaming industry and and the film industry as it has uh, as it has been. Some of the technologies that are now available bring uh, bringing those things together. We just had a great conference um, in Wellington um, oh, not that long ago, uh, which brought together the film industry and the gaming industry and had them sort of thinking about what the convergence opportunities are. And they're significant. So I think I, I do think that gaming's, um, you know, it, it's a it's a huge international industry. Uh, it has vast uh, audience um, around the place. It depends on uh, you know incredible innovation. I mean, people don't. I, I keep when I when I talk to these these uh, or first started this role idea a few years ago, talking to young people who were in this um, this gaming space and talking to them about IP protection and all that sort of stuff, they'd look at me as if I was completely mad and say, well, there's no point in doing all that. You've just got to keep reinventing your game and you've got to be quick and, and nimble because the people in Vietnam or in wherever else in the world, they're going uh, hell for leather as well. So... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm a fan. I think. Uh, I think it's got huge potential for us. Uh, and uh, as I say, I think the complementarity of of uh, the the film sector, the gaming sector, and then, frankly, into the technology digital um, sector, is 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 real. Uh, and and if we if we chip a bit off, we risk. Um, destabilising the whole thing. So uh, I've I grew up on a dairy farm uh, through the eighties, and um, you've been uh, you're very familiar with the, those papers that come out of Treasury and and the ethos which has um, permeated through our political economy in the last twenty or thirty years, which is that subsidies are a bad idea that uh, interventions uh, don't work, governments can't pick winners. Just putting my devil's advocate hat on and um, channeling that those Treasury papers, why should those people who aren't subsidised, farmers, for example, although you could argue there are some uh, uh, not very clear and other subsidies which are involved, but not quite as cash-laden as the ones for the movies, uh, what would you say to those other sectors who say, well, hey, what about us? Why don't we, you know, have our, uh, why don't we try and um, promote and invest government money in some of these other sectors? 
Oh, look, government, if, 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 if the proposition is that government's not investing in agriculture, then I think the proposition's completely false. I mean, I'm, I'm a, a supporter of our agriculture sector. I think it's been um, a fabulous underpinning of this country for so long. I think most of the narrative that you hear about farmers being Neanderthal or uh, uh, unable to innovate or uncertain about international markets or whatever is just complete rubbish. Um, but... but um, uh, government does invest significantly, and it invests in the science, it invests in, in uh, marketing support, uh, NZTE and organisations of that kind, um, and it invests in supporting a lot of the innovation that goes on, uh, you know, whether it's in the uh, in, in the climate space or, or whatever. So, so I think if actually if you looked at government investment in agriculture and the weight that's put behind agriculture in our international engagements and our trade negotiations and things of that kind, uh, you see the government recognising that we've got a significant competitive advantage in that space and that we need to exploit it. I think it's exactly the same. I mean, strategy is about making choices. So I'm not a believer that you should just, um, you, that you, you, you just say, oh, well, look, let's just let everything go. We've got to make choices. Uh, and I think it is legitimate uh, for the government to say that as a consequence of, of fortune in some ways that we've had uh, in this city, uh, Peter Jackson and Richard Taylor uh, and Jane Campion and Taika and, and a range of individuals um, we've now got a weight of experience and a weight of capability and an ecosystem sitting in sort of underneath that, which can create real value for us both actually in jobs and in, and in economic return and in reputation and international um, uh, presence. And and I, you know, I'm a believer that we should try, we should pick winners when, well, when we're not picking winners, we should back winners. We should back winners. Uh, and the truth is that if you don't have a rebate scheme that is at least at, at floor level, um, you will not have a film industry. That's, that's, not, a, that's, that's, that's not an exaggeration, that's just a truth. Uh, and so that's a choice and I, I would choose to have it. Just finally, uh, again with my um, libertarian uh, uh, devil's advocate hat on, and we, we hear a lot of this from, you know, certain parts of the political sphere that, you know, there's too many bureaucrats, that we need to stop the wasteful spending, that we need to get rid of all these people in government departments, who knows what they do, and we should just clear the decks. Um, I see from the last annual report that you've got that there's $27 million worth of spending by Wellington NZ. You know, I, if I was a libertarian type, I could come in and say, well, just get rid of all that. Um, let private enterprise bloom. Um, what would you come back to someone like that and say? Well... You know, I've heard this narrative about bureaucrats for years. This is this view that bureaucrats are somehow sort of dull, boring, inefficient, lazy. Um, it's nonsense. Um, we have some of the very best public policy minds in the world. Uh, we have some of the very best public servants and public service capability in the world. It is recognised internationally. People are looking at us, watching us, thinking about what we are doing. So, so, so the, the idea that bureaucrats are bad or bureaucrats aren't innovative or bureaucrats aren't creative or bureaucrats are boring is, you know, I mean, 
It, it, it looks good as a headline or it might run well in Auckland, I don't know, but, but it's just nonsense. Um, I, I, you know, some of the most creative people I've ever worked with um, are, are in the public service and doing some of the most amazing work uh, for the deepest benefit for our country. Uh, and so uh, I, I'm, a, I'm an advocate for, uh, for the bureaucracy. Uh, in terms of the value of the work that um, an economic development agency does, uh, the, the, the value is in, uh, you know, the, the people we can attract to the region, the talent we can attract to the region, the jobs we can create in the region. That, that, I mean, those are the, those are, those are the big uh, hefty things that we, that we can focus on uh, and we do focus on. Uh, and I think on any metric at the moment, your $27 million is being well spent. Of course, the disruptions of COVID have both put a focus on the value of economic development and of understanding what's happening in communities and actually being able to target um, investment to those communities. Uh, but even in this post-COVID environment, um, you know, we are able uh, to, just through relatively smart, um, careful and targeted investment, building relatively strong relationships with key partners, leverage the investment the, the, the city is making and the Greater Wellington Regional Council is making in us for the benefit of the region. And so from my point of view, for every dollar that we get from in, in sort of that direct funding that you're referring to, uh, we need to be uh, we need to be finding other dollars uh, from partners to create more of an impact. And the challenge is to make sure that we're not doing so many little things because you're always being asked to do little things when you're in this sort of role um, so that we dissipate, we spend all of our energy, we're hell of a busy, but we don't actually really shift the dial. And that's, uh, you know, that's what I constantly worry about, which is are we making an impact? Are we shifting the dial? And if we weren't, if I didn't think that we were, uh, then, you know, you need to rethink. Uh, John Allen, the CEO of Wellington NZ, um, thank you very much for being on When the Facts Change. Thanks, Bernard. It's been enjoyable. When the Facts Change was brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network, together with KiwiBank. Visit kiwibank.co.nz to find out how KiwiBank are making Kiwi better off. Kia ora e te iwi, te Ahe Butler here, podcast manager at The Spinoff. If you enjoy listening to our podcasts, consider supporting our mahi by signing up to become a Spinoff member at thespinoff.co.nz slash donate. The Spinoff Podcast Network.